This installment of the Dookie Radio Show represents another step in becoming a truly multi-format podcast. And this time, with a difference. This is part one of our two-part interview with musician, raconteur, producer, technician, engineer, wine expert, synth whiz and all-round nice chap David Harmon. Gear geekery meets inebriation in a big way. In the best gears of our lives for that's the title of this double trouble episode Harmon and myself explore how synths and recording technology have shaped both our guest's life as a musician and as a person and in the style of the television series Drunk History David and myself imbibe in a manner that can best be described as proud and very respectful of the glories of red wine As the interview progresses, you may hear some slurring. And indeed, conversations may go off on weird tangents. So, in a roundabout way, this podcast should also have the tagline, Drunken Geekery. And this should also serve as a warning. The gear geekery is full on, as is the wine consumption. With a healthy amount of plonk already in our respective systems, this coordinated synthman and musical partner in crime gets stuck in immediately by giving me a thumbs up on my studio monitors. A pair of Yamaha NS10s. Anytime I walk in a room and there's some NS10s, I feel comfortable. Do you, do you like them? Are you an NS10 fan? Well, yes and no. I mean, for all of their failings, I do like them. Yeah. I've got the modern equivalent, which is sort of the HS30, is it? HS10, HS30. I can't remember. That's embarrassing. Um, but yeah, very similar looking thing. They're clearly designed to look like them. Mm. Uh, and they warm up. Um, but they are brutal. And you will never get a flattering sound out of them. But they're not quite as bleak as the NS10s. I mean, NS10s are... I mean, they are bleak. That's just a sad reality. <laughs> they are. But there was that old thing. I mean, you'd have the, the amazing SSL in the, the big studios and the amazing monitors, you know, tens of thousands of pounds worth of monitors. Everything would sound amazing. And then the art was to make it sound good on the NS10s. Mm. And part of me always thought, well, why, why don't you just start mixing on the NS10s? <laughs> I mean, if you make it sound good, no. I mean, everyone feels good about the big sound. Um, but, hey, you know, you've got to find that balance somewhere. But, yeah, I've, I've got the modern equivalent of that. It's got a, a sub with it, and the sub is quite... It's good because it makes you feel a bit better about yourself, but it is... It's a tickling of the balls, um, and it's it's not... It's not a, a perfect sound, so you never quite know. I mean, I'm in a small room. I'm not in a properly treated room, so it's a dangerous thing because it makes you, makes you think, hmm, this is sounding amazing. And then you listen elsewhere without the sub, and you start to think you've missed some bits. And So it's not really a critical listening environment. I, I can't say my monitoring is good, <laughs> but 
Yeah, I'm, I'm one of these. I'm from the school of thought that says, shut yourself in a different room next door, almost close the door, turn it up a bit, and then have a listen. And then listen to it on almost no level at all. And then go upstairs or climb into the loft and listen to it. You know, I like listening in different places. Once I think I've got it right, it tells you a lot being elsewhere because you, your brain sort of psychoacoustically almost picks up all sorts of different things that you hadn't really realised. The amount of times in which I've gone downstairs to make some tea hmm. for, number one, the purpose of tea, and number two, <laughs> to actually hear whatever I've been working on. Two of life's most important things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Through the floorboards yeah. it is important. You, you start... I've made critical decisions in terms of mixes being in it, another room. It's funny. You, you can spend hours and hours, and I suppose that's, that's the naughty thing, is you spend hours in front of these speakers and you think you're doing a great job, and you think, that's it. I think I've finally done it. So you think, I'll stand up, go downstairs, and just make some tea or open a bottle of wine, and off you go. You pour yourself a glass of wine, and then you immediately think, that vocal's too bloody loud. Mm. <laughs> and if I, and it's, it's a weird, weird thing. And you go back, and you turn it up a bit, you turn it down a bit, and you get caught up in that that micro precision of wanting to adjust every single bloody thing and i part of me wants to just go get out of that habit you know it's fine it sounds good walk away but i know that every time i listen to that track i'll be thinking however much people go oh i like that i really like that track you'll be thinking oh, i should have had you know, a couple of db down and you don't you don't want to be that guy who worries about every single nuance of the hi-hat but equally you have to have that sense of wanting it to be right for you because uh, that that's it's that sense of auteur to use a pretentious word you know it, it, that's what makes it exciting for me to produce music that sense of it's great that people like it if they do if they don't that's fair enough I, you know that's totally cool as well but i make music because i like what comes out the other end and i want to listen to it and if it never becomes that i i just stop doing it you're coming of age and embracing music for the first time yeah Talk to me. <laughs> okay, well, it's a Damascene conversion. It was literally a, a conversion moment, and I can, I can pinpoint it. I was at school in Amersham, and we had this very cool music teacher. You know, the music had been quite bleak for me. I was the kid who was always given the scrapey fish, um, uh, which is a very unkind thing for someone with no natural rhythm, because you are going to stand out like anything. Um, but I was given that, and... Or if not that, I was given the one chime bar that wasn't in the song. So you get to the end of the song, and I noticed I hadn't actually hit anything, and because they never pointed it at me, and I think, well, that's cool. You know, I think we've all won here. Everyone, <laughs> I'm happy with that. Um, the, track, the track has not been ruined by my strange, let's say, syncopated rhythms. Um, so I, I was perfectly happy, and I, so I never really thought music was for me. Um, and then, weirdly, I, well, we had this very cool music teacher who came in, and he was the kind of guy who had a, a, a double-necked... Now, you'll know what this is, being a proper musician. There was a, you know, a guitar and a bass on the same thing. Right. I mean, it's it, ludicrous. But he came in, he was showing us an instrument. Each week, he'd come in with something a bit odd. And he thought, well, that's very cool. And he was playing guitar and bass. The next week, he came in with this thing called a synthesizer. Um, it was a Sequential Circuits Pro 1, I now know. Um, and utterly blew my mind and it i don't say that trivially i i was the sort of person who was not musical i was reasonably technical um i was always a bit of a sort of computer kid sort of sat around prodding buttons at home but then suddenly the, he put this thing in, in front of us i didn't touch it because all the other kids sort of went foom, straight onto it and just sort of twiddled the knobs and made noises and um i sat at the back of the room and just had this weird conversion moment thinking that 
is for me. I, I love this sense. He, he talked us through the concept of it brilliantly by not over go, overdoing all the stuff about envelopes and filters and resonance and this, that and the other. He just said, with this device, if you turn the knobs enough, you can make just about any sound. And that one sentence to me made me want to be with synthesizers forever. And I thank him forever that. He's called Joe Moretti. And if he's still out there, I'd love to hear from him because he, he was a guy who changed the course of my life. I, my mother was a bit musical and it came at just at a moment in my life. This is coming, the psychiatrist's chair, but um, it came at a moment in my life where she had finally bought a second-hand piano. You know, she always wanted to get a piano in the house. She finally bought this thing. And I came home and said... Oh, synthesizers. <laughs> so there was this terrible, slightly awkward moment when we all looked at each other in that sort of very middle-class way going, um, what? <laughs> and they, they had tried to get... I, mean, I had a couple of piano lessons. That didn't work at all because I sat in front of a piano and tinkled around. And what happened was I would just read the bit of music. I'd sort of gradually decode it, work out how the music went, and then remember it. So that my brain wasn't clearly tuned to being able to look at a thing and sort of convert that into playing. I wasn't that minded in that way. And also I wasn't studious enough to feel I want to go and study music. Um, so I brilliantly, she said, well, would you rather have one of these synthesizer things? And so she sold the piano and with it bought my first synthesizer, which was uh, CZ-1000. Four that's, octaves. That's a, a Casio. Casio. Casio CZ-1000. Uh, made famous by Tamita um, because he was involved with Casio when he did his version of the planets. But it's called CZ synthesis, and hence the name CZ-1000. And there was a big one called the CZ-1, which is fully touch sensitive. There was, there was a also a CZ-101 There was a 101, well. which had the mini keys. Mm. Mine was a 1000, which had four octaves and full-size keys, which was quite the thing in the time. I didn't realise it was, I mean, in hindsight, but five octaves and touch sensitivity is, is a good starting point for any sort of keyboard noodling. And the one limitation of this was obviously not touch sensitive. So you can hit it as hard as you like. It doesn't get any louder. Um, and initially you don't know any of this. You're just noodling around this thing that can make sounds. And I was transfixed for weeks and months fiddling around with this thing. But I was then there was a sort of a flip side to that where I think I started to get a little bit, jaded because I thought well hang on a minute I'm listening to Depeche Mode on the radio I don't think they're using one of these and yet this is a synthesizer what's going on and so I I set about learning about synths and I I discovered a magazine called Sound on Sound and I read every copy I could get my hands on and I bought all the back issues and read I mean fantastic interviews with people who work with all sorts of people and um, I mean people like Peter Gabriel just talking back in the day about the inspiration that technology gave them and that was a really exciting thing for me that this sense that we were in a transitional time where technology was an enabler that allowed brilliantly talented musicians who had always been good at what they did musically now had this fearsome new toolkit lying around of amazing technology be it synthesizers be it digital multitracks be it sampling which was in its infancy but when you listen to peter gabriel or herbie hancock talking about the Fairlight, you can see it in their eyes they're just thinking at the time i can't believe i've been given this thing which allows me to do all those things i sort of thought oh if only i could do this if i could slow that down or if i could play it as a chord and it was th the gateway to all of this fantastic innovation i think 
possibly, if I'm being slightly negative about it, I think in hindsight, we've dropped the ball a little bit in terms of where sampling could have gone and the technology, the uses of the technology we might have had. But God, it's, it's given us some great music along the way. So it's gone off on a tangent, but it seemed like it was the beginning of something incredible. And it was such an exciting time. Every new piece of kit that came out, I read about it end to end. And I couldn't afford most of it because one of the things about synths is they're damned expensive. Bloody expensive. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, reassuringly expensive, one might argue. But the very thought of something like, in the, even in the day, you know, something like a Jupiter 8. Um, when the Emacs came out, I remember just salivating, thinking, well, that is an emulator too, but cut down to an affordable inverted commas level it was still a, it was well over a thousand quid um and th- you had to think in those terms everything was four digits and so it was unattainable to a degree but what was exciting was because it was all moving so fast there was a second hand market that was vibrant and I literally, I mean, in my in our school days, um, we set up a little band. We were called, I think, originally in a bit of a Spinal Tap moment. We were called originally the Herbaceous Borders. They won't thank me for saying that. The herbaceous um, Borders. <laughs> There's something so British oh. and middle class about that. I mean, we remained unreleased. Name. I'll be honest, but I mean, we were called that initially. Then we went to be called Magnetic Media, which is we felt was. You know, heading off into that craftwork territory of being quite sort of Bauhaus bleak, sort of exciting. And then we just became media in the Facebook way of dropping the the. You know, we just dropped magnetic and we became media. Right. Uh, it's not exciting. the media, we are media. We are media. Yes. And yeah, I, that to us was, Don't was a big say moment. media either. <laughs> media. <laughs> no, there were no, no beards here. So yeah, we absolutely. And um, there were three of us, a couple of guys, um, two brothers and me. Um, at school and we would just spend you know weekends getting together and I mean it, it sounds like jumpers of a goalpost but it was ironing boards for keyboard stands you know we had no kit but we had the keyboard bits and we'd save up and we'd buy the next second hand keyboard we could find things like Insonic Mirage or second hand RX5 or, or whatever it, things were dropping off the cool list and at that point their value would just plummet and so it was great to look in the back of Sound on Sound. You'd always go straight there for those yellow pages and look through the, the classifiers and think, oh, God, there's one of those and one of those straight on the phone. And this poor guy, you know, whoever was selling that one thing that month would be inundated with phone calls. Mostly from school kids going, oh, is that still for sale? Are we going to mum or drive me? And so we, we would drive to these people. And sometimes you get to some pretty rough locations and you'd be driving around East London and someone would open the door and there'd be like this sort of smoke wafting out of the door and your mum would be in the car going, is this all right? I, I didn't know. Not, 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 not. <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> Do we require a, a chaperone for this purpose? Will there be a receipt? <laughs> no, I don't think there will. Um, but it was brilliant. And the, the great thing was, everyone you met was a synth head. And that stayed with me forever. Everybody I, I came across, it was almost like handing over a baton. And I, I don't, again, I don't say that lightly. It's a weird thing. And I felt it when I've, I mean, after many years of accruing lots of synth bits, I. Um, I finally I went freelance again. I, I sort of moved out of music and thought, I've just, you know, I've got to go freelance and I wanted to go off and do something else. And I had to sell my synths to eat food. So I, I sold a whole load of synths. And you do, you, you well up, literally. And you feel so attached to these things because 
not that so much the digital stuff, but the analog stuff is so much a part of you. Every knob, every single tweak of every knob is so fluid into the music and you you can't you, it's terrible if, if it were a film there'd be a sort of montage with some tinkly music or some pounding techno um of every single moment you turned a knob and just nodded and went oh yeah <laughs> that's exactly what i meant to do at that point uh, it, it it's so tactile that you can't help but feel attached to it so i i kind of in hindsight i really felt for these people who are handing over their synths at the time, you're just a kid with a few notes that you've saved up thinking, oh, if I get this back, I can do some breakbeats. <laughs> and, you know, you've got a sampler suddenly, so you can do some loops, and off we went. Um, just incredible time. And it's the equivalent of, I suppose, a, you know, a, a guitarist or that first club you play as a kid when you get that vibe off a crowd. I never had that. I never wanted to be in front of a crowd. I was fascinated by the technology. That moment you get a secondhand synth back and shut the door... It's probably what most kids feel the day they get that first porn mag back from the woods. Mm. You know, for me, it was that sense of power this thing up and it illuminates. Or if it's a classic analog, nothing illuminates, it just hums. <laughs> Something hums and you plug it in and hope it works because you didn't want to test it in case you upset the man. <laughs> so you get home and think, how have I been had? And you turn some knobs and it sounds amazing. And, oh, God, it was such a time, you know, to discover all this technology. It was like a dirty underworld of... Um, stuff that I mean everyone who talked to had no idea about synthesizers you know this was not something that was foisted on me or the year other dot yeah this really was this is my year zero so from the the CZ1000 and <laughs> CZ synthesis yeah what were the next couple of synths that became the gears of your life the gears of my life okay well hit, hit, in one of those weird twists it turned out that my dad who worked in London said to me one day we were talking about synths, and I was thinking about, you know, where do I go next? What do I buy? And the, the other guys, the, the the brothers, who I should name, actually, Andy and Simon Chisholm, fantastic guys who I was at school with and really talented. I mean, proper musicians. But added to that, they were synth heads. So they bought the music to the band, and I was a bit of a knob twiddler. Um, and they bought various bits of kit. We had RX-5. I bought and um, had a... Well, the the first thing that happened for um, for those guys was things like an RX five um, SH one hundred one. We had an Insonic Mirage. Um, I had via my father an indirect link. He came back one day and said, "You're into this synthesizer stuff." I, I, it turns out I know the guy who imports Roland kit into the UK. And I thought, hang on, what? How did that happen? And, he, and it turned out that it was sort of in, indirectly, you know, friend of a friend. But he said, therefore, I can get you a decent price on the Roland kit. And at the time, they just launched the D20, the Roland D20. It was a cut down. The D50 was the dream machine. I think we're, you know, we're probably talking 80, what's it, 87? Mm. Yeah, quite right. Um, I think the M1 was a year later, wasn't it? 80, 88. Forgive me, I've got that wrong. But... Um, the D50 just seemed incredible when it came out because it was one of these first sort of software... It was a software synth, but it had sort of sample and synthesis. So it was, in theory, the best of all worlds. But I think we've seen since then, actually, that's not necessarily true, that actually synthesis is probably all you need. <laughs> but we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Um, and the D50 seemed incredible. You know, the presets on it blew you away. It had effects built in, which was just incredible. Um, and so I... I was I had this incredible present one year at Christmas of a D20. And I 
I don't think I left my bedroom for about three months. Uh, this thing was incredible. It was, in a way, more limited because it was an eight-part uh, multi-timbral version, inverted commas, of the D50. Yes, it was, but in order to achieve that, they took away a lot of its power. So none of its you know, many sounds actually sounded as good as any individual sound on the D50. But you could do so much more with it. You had eight different parts. You had a sequencer. You had a drum machine in it. And you could b- construct songs. And that was the key thing for us as a band, as media, was it meant that we could actually build songs and, more importantly, do songs live. So we could start to structure stuff and send stuff out of the MIDI ports to other synths. Bizarrely, with a D20, you had to mute parts on the sequencer to send them out of the MIDI port, which never made any sense to me. But once you had worked that out, um, it meant that we could trigger all the different synths and stuff would just work. And it was like some sort of mad old steam-driven machine. Once we had a room full of kit, the excitement of working out how to patch it all together and push buttons and make stuff happen. And, you know, you press start on a sequencer on one side of the room and various bits of kit come to life and start triggering pulses out of the outputs. And if you put that output into the input of another device, it triggers that clock and then that clock picks up and off it goes. And we gradually worked out how to make songs happen. You know, we could not only make nice little grooves, but we could start to construct songs. What was your lineup of that band? You mentioned the two brothers. Did that was you... it. That was right. just the, the, the three of us. As far as we were concerned, we were craft folk meets Depeche Mode. We thought we can do this because Andy sang. Um, we had a bit of New Order in us as well. You know, that, in fact, I think one of the first songs we played live, I can't remember what the first song on stage was, but things like um, we did a, a, a really good version of Two Faith. <laughs> we thought, <laughs> right. if we're totally honest, I think, I, yeah, I think we nailed that one. Um, we had some amusing moments along the way, a lot of technological failures, but we'd, given that most school bands at the time were sort of a couple of guitars and some drums, this is very unusual, you know, to turn up with a load of kit and try and make it all work. And we were just mad in terms of turning up and trying to make this stuff work. We, we didn't have any sense of the appalling dangers of taking technology live and everything that could go wrong. We literally took our studio with us and just patched it all together and pressed, you know... How long did it take you to set everything up? That's quite a... It was probably about an hour, an hour set up. the sound engineer must have loved you. (laughs) Take all the time in the world. (laughs) Please enjoy yourselves. No no rush here. But it it wasn't a highly pressurised gig, you know. These these were sort of PTA-type meetings or, you know, an evening of music and poetry was happening during the evening. You know, the the poetry still started at 8.45 <laughs> There'd be a school band afterwards. and yeah, Crikey, yeah, we were sort of all part of the fun. In fact, we got pelted with buns on one occasion because they'd left the buns out from the buffet earlier on. Ooh, um, were was, they hot crusts? They, uh, uh, they, uh, no, no, I think it was just a, a crusty... A, a crusty bun, I think, yeah. Oh, goodness, those were the days. Oh, halcyon days. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the lineup. it was just the three of us. Um, but who was doing what? Were the one of the brothers was singing, and the other yeah. brother. Well, was... actually, no. I mean, well, we, we were all noodlers. We were all synthheads. So um, Simon uh, was. I, I don't think Andy would dislike me saying this. I think and as uh, Simon was a, a, a brilliant pianist um, and very, very musically literate and a real detail person. So uh, he was very technically literate as well. He could really get his head into. 
um, things like the RX-5, which is a monstrously complex piece of kit. And you could do all sorts of things. You're, you're triggering sounds. It wasn't just a drum machine. I mean, this thing was a complete studio in itself. It, incredible what you could do with it. Um, it, it. You could retune sounds. You could play sounds across the keyboard um, effectively. And you could trigger all sorts of things. So a lot of our early tracks, it sounds like we've got a digital percussionist playing sort of marimba and stuff and, and doing really interesting rhythms. And it becomes part of the melody. Um, it's like having Bill Bruford in the room when you've got Simon programming an RX-5. It just blows your mind. I guarantee if we gave that to Yamaha, they, they would probably go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we don't, didn't realise it could do that. <laughs> you know, the way he made that thing sing was amazing. But um, Andy was equally musically talented, but he was more focused on sort of the lyrics and the song, the structure of the song. He was also, I mean, to this day, he's a very good DJ. So he was really good at the break beats and the feel and the synth sounds around a feel. And so he was the man on the Mirage. You know, he, he could make this thing really sing. And because they, we were all off at different schools, you know, during, during term time, whoever it was who happened to end up with the Mirage in their room or in their bedroom at home, would be the guy who was kind of working on some grooves. So when we all came back together, it's, you sort of say, well, Simon had this, so he did this thing, and he had the drum machine. I didn't have it, so I did this on the SH-101. And it, it was weird. It was like going off... It's, it's, it's like you two going off to different chateaux around the world and coming back to us. Which is know. a little bit like... Yeah, it I, is. I, there was this great <laughs> sense of, yeah, we've been exploring in our own studios. Well, OK, it's, it's you know two bits of string and a pair of headphones. But it, was, it meant that we came back with fresh ideas. And um, we also forced ourselves to write a track in a day write record finish a track in a day partly because it it meant you got it finished and it was an interesting process and partly also because none of it was recoverable i mean you know that there, there was a good chance that whatever you saved on the mirage may not be there the next time you tried to load it um there was that was also fairly true of uh, the C, the atari st i had for a while because one of the reasons it was cheap it transpired was that the disk drive kind of went uh -huh, sometimes and just didn't do things so all those things you carefully saved and thought aha you know we've got an excellent sequence when you press play nothing um so we had all sorts of technical issues in that sense and also of course a very i had a, a um i worked in a music shop um, when I was at school, that was my thing for pocket money. And Which I, music shop is it still around? Uh, no, now? it was called the Chilton Piano Company, um, and it was it basically I say a music shop lovingly. It was a second-hand piano company. Well, okay, let's be fair. It was a piano shop. Let's be fair, and they had second-hand pianos and new pianos, and they realised there was this new thing called technology, and so they put that on. I think the it was a sort of a three or four-story townhouse-type concept in Amersham. Um, and so on the in the basement and on the first and on the ground floor they had pianos of all varieties um on the first floor they had tech uh technology in as much as digital pianos and then a level up because i turned up they said well shall we have these things called synthesizers Ooh. so i went up a level up and had my own little cupboard at the top um and they started to buy in some stuff. So they got in a Korg M1. One, just a Korg M1 in a box. Um, and they had some other bits as well. And we sort of made a bit of a room of it. And um, there was, uh, next door, they had a guitar room because, you know, kids are into these things called guitars. We should all have some of those. And what it basically meant was a guy, another guy from the same school as me, did the guitars, a guy called Mike Sastry. Um, 
And every Saturday, we just go upstairs and just think this is the time of our lives. You know, we I, we can just noodle around up here. And occasionally, I was required to go downstairs and prove to people I couldn't play the digital pianos, which I couldn't. They thought I was being coy, but I genuinely can't play. Um, but I can talk to them about technology. So oddly, I think we sold more because of that. Um, because people wanted to know about the different tones and timbres and, and what is the difference between this and this. And I was fascinated by all of that, this, this, con- this new technology that had come along, sampling and synthesis. The Roland RDs sounded very, very different to the chord pianos. And people would say, it's fine. You know, they'd, they'd listen to one of the talented musicians from the ground floor come upstairs and play something. And they say, well, that's lovely with you playing it, but what's the difference between this and this? Why, why would I choose a Korg over a Roland or a Kawai over a Technics? Or... And I could answer that question, for, you know, both, both in terms of interconnectivity and in terms of um, the nuance of the way that they'd created their sound. I mean, I probably bored them senseless, but at least it gave them some clues rather than just, you know, have a play and see what you think. Um, and it, you know, technology has always been that for me. It's, it's been an enabler. The technology for me is as much part of the production as the sound and the the musical side of it. I'm fascinated by how technology affects the sound of of what you're doing. How do you feel about Top of the Pops using a Korg M1 for its? performed keyboard for far too many years well originally it was, the, it was the dx7 for years wasn't it i mean mm. the, we we sort of grew up with that expectation that a band basically was a guitarist who may or may not have been plugged into nothing and uh, there was a, sometimes a cable going nowhere there was a a microphone heaven knows um there was for the singer and then there was always a dx7 on a stand with someone just banging it with their left hand and everyone bouncing around very happy um I don't have access to that amazing technology that allows you to make music that way. So it, it always made me laugh. Um, but <laughs> oddly, that meant that everyone know, knew the name of the Yamaha DX7, because that's where Yamaha were geniuses. They put the name of the synth on the back of the synth. And so many of the manufacturers forgot to do that. They put their brand in big letters. You know, you get Roland all over the place. But they, only later on did they start to add what it was. But it almost, even if you're not into synths, you know the name DX7. There, there's something that entered our psyche because of Top of the Pops. And it was the ultimate miming instrument. You know, if it going on, it had to be one of those. And then it became the M1 when that came out. And I think partly because of that, massively impressive piano at the time you know it was such a huge hitting piano absolutely yeah that step on type yeah. sound. It, was like, um, it was so aggressive and those presets probably i mean you know reader inquiries by text are welcome but i i think probably the best presets of all time the korg m1 yeah uh, in terms of displaying what a what a keyboard is capable of achieving it also achieved the the other thing of it affected a lot of the SNS stuff certainly in the late 80s whilst it brilliantly showed what this synthesizer was capable of it also made them almost impossible to put into a mix because the, the presets were incredible I mean I think it was 07 symphonic it remains one of the greatest string sounds it's not very polyphonic because I think they, they threw everything into every single note but it it's just a magnificent sound and at the time it totally blew your mind when you're standing in a music shop and you play this thing it brings tears to the eyes and um you know the organs were incredible um the piano was exceptional for its time it was a bit clonky i mean they even put that into the later digital grand it still sounded terrible but they they carried on it it had become part of their sound um and 
I remember the first time you, I, <laughs> this is when you know you've made it I was sitting in a studio and someone had two M1s and I thought well that's just ridiculous the <laughs> come on oh my come word. on I am in Sodom and Gomorrah now this is it you know we're all going to die and neither of them fit in the mix <laughs> we had this great we had a great groove going on and oh oh hello that's four that was a good groove what was that okay. uh, it doesn't matter it, it, whatever fell we didn't need it anyway. If I'd mentioned a band name, that could have been the ultimate moment of dropping me a clanger. But no, I didn't. Okay. Um, no, so they had these two M1s, and I thought, this is, this is going to be the best song ever. And immediately it became obvious that however much you try and drop it into a mix, there's far too much... There's, it's EQ'd to buggery, and the effects are enormous and lovely, but you immediately take them off. And so that started that whole relationship with me, that whole realisation in the curve of thinking, you know what, actually technology has kind of peaked for me i i'm i realize i'm kind of hankering backwards rather than forwards i'm looking at the stuff that didn't have built-in effects i'm looking at the stuff that wasn't instantly recallable with a billion options um and much as my job required me to carry on because i mean to, you know, to continue the story i ended up starting to work in that industry and being required to understand the new kit and yet my mind and my heart was being dragged backwards i i knew that and in hindsight, I wish I'd bought 25 Jupiter 8s because I could probably bloody retire on it now. <laughs> it's true, it's become the 1959 Les Paul of the keyboard world. It is. It is, it is a, the ultimate wine taster's ideal keyboard. That it, is. it has become a nostalgia quality. Those sounds are amazing. Yeah. It is the benchmark by which old synthesizers are measured. Now, the cognoscenti will always say, oh, but there's this and there's this and there's this. And I, you, know, you could reel off 25 synthesizers and say that technically they were more interesting or better, whatever that means. But there was something miraculous about the simplicity, the ease of use, but the power of the sounds in the Jupiter A, instantly recallable, very obvious. And it's still a great teaching synthesizer. If you're showing someone how to use a synthesizer. I mean, probably the best teaching synthesizer is the Prophet 5 because it has such a clear channel path on its, its upper levels. It's also attractively raked, which is very important for synthesizer. It should be just enough to make a Bic Biro roll slightly, um, <laughs> but not so raked that you can't put a kebab on it. <laughs> that, that's been, yeah, yeah. So the it, it's just enormously pleasing all around and the split and layer was you know quite exciting for its time it's also jovially colored which is important a, a lot of very serious synthesizers came out later things i mean the d50 at least had a bit of garish blue on it but things like the wave station bleak bleak um the wave station rack version i'm mm, familiar with yes. and i had the manual for a while and I try to understand it. It's the equivalent of trying to learn Hegel, the philosopher. Um, it, it's my words. What it was capable of and what I was capable of making it do, the disparity could not have been more vast. <laughs> Just a massive exercise in self-disappointment. Well, the, the, the funny thing, uh, well, that was a Dave Smith instrument because he got subsumed into the whole enormous thing when sequential circuits, sadly, you know, chapeau bar gentlemen disappeared. Uh, that was a terrible moment for everybody. Um, but 
happy news, he's back. So welcome back, Dave Smith, and welcome back to the profit name, you know, back in the industry again. God, that's exciting. Um, What's happened? What <laughs> there is now there's a profit the again. He's back. Dave Smith Instruments is back because he was part of the Yamaha name. That's why they came out with the SY series of synthesizers. Oh, that was all his. And, that, right. and, and the Wave Station was, in theory, his magnum opus. It was a sense of, well, all this stuff you've garnered over the years, Dave, what would you make if you could? And so Korg made this thing. Um, and it, it yeah. was, it, I mean, it's so many pages. It was quite exciting, but it was, it, it was, every single page did have a purpose, but you didn't feel like you were changing much when you were changing the parameters. You know, you felt like it was a long, long job that you had to do. Um, and at some point the sound might change, but who could tell when? Um, and it was also, <laughs> Well, the most interesting thing initially when you started playing with this is this concept of wave sequences. So you could hold down a note, and it wasn't triggering different notes, but the idea was it would step through a wavetable. Mm. So in its extreme, that would mean you could actually modulate between different waveforms as part of a sound, but that was, you know, beyond, I mean, it'd take you forever to do that. So what most people used it for was that kind of the sound you'd hear pop up in certain... Uh, pop hits of the time <laughs> it's a slight curl of the lip as i said but um you would instantly know that digital native dance thing from the d50 it's that sort of thing that sort of strangely tribal rhythmic just holding down one note do chicka boom chicka bang bang chicka boom um there's a bit of it on a couple of genesis songs I'm appalled to say Tony Banks should know better. Um, Tony Banks should know better about a lot of things. <laughs> Would- I mean, he's actually one of my favourite synthesizer players of all time for his moments on uh, Live at Wembley. Was it 1987 again? The, the, right. That DVD. Um, Does that that predates the wave station though oh god well yes it predates the wave station and it was back in his day of using things like um he would have dx7 he would take a synclavier on stage with him it was absolute madness how they ever get Mm. that thing to boot on tour my Um, word it's the cost (laughs) the equivalent of of an entire house it's terribly exciting and the thought of that i mean it must have more insurance than the entire tour i think um and then he'd have the the alp um it was just extraordinary what he achieved in in terms of making it sound amazing live he took the studio live but in an intelligent way and he had the emulator too um and i i mean okay some of it may have been off sequencer but a lot of what he played did appear to be live and it had a, a live feel to it and it's so visceral to hear those things played live and the arpeggios off um off the arp it it felt like he was in the moment when you compare that with the tat and i think i can say that without fear of litigation of the the most recent tour live over europe where he uses the Korg oasis and it's just bollocks um he whole, just doesn't give a fuck anymore well it may be that it may be that I, I, he's also a very bitter man there's a, a documentary on our screens here in the uk about a year ago where you got to see all the original members peter gabriel included oh um, yes okay and yeah. i was amazed at how banks came across um I mean, ultimately from a genesis point of view bank was always the quiet chap in the background who you probably wanted to go out to the pub with having seen that documentary he is the I, I, he's not my kind of guy. No, he came I mean, across really badly. Whereas Phil Collins, who's an easy target and is very self-aware about that, came uh, across with humility. As did Peter Gabriel, who mm. who was able to laugh off his 
diva-like behaviour, you know, when discussing certain eras of Genesis, was Banks is just a, a, a very bitter man. He may be a talented man. I, I think he is. And but I, he's a bitter man. I, I'd like to think, I mean, I hate, you know, I, I don't want to cast judgment upon these people. I, I don't know them at all. But I just wonder whether there's a little part of him that regret, regrets giving up a lot of that amazing technology and who he was at the time. Because he, he was almost unparalleled at the time. And people laugh at me when I say that about Genesis and the sort of stuff they were doing. But <clears throat> it was that height of great production sound and really interesting synths that were driving a track as part of a band. And that's disappearing now. I mean... People, a lot of people say to me about Muse, you know, you, sh- you should like them because it's got synths in it. Well, where? You know, okay, it's got the occasional synth and the occasional arpeggio. It's, but it's synth not, as it's a foundation, but it's not, no, know. it isn't synth-driven. <clears throat> and I, I just felt that about a lot of the stuff they were doing. And things like the Brazilian were just eye-opening for me. And I had, a, again, a, quite a, a discovery moment way back when. It was a sight and sound, sort of Radio 2 simulcast, and someone had recorded it off the radio, and I was staying around at someone's house because my parents were away, and the the brother, who was a bit older, came downstairs and said, oh, you should listen to this, and he stuck it on, and it was Genesis Live, and they played through a few things, and they, they played Domino, and they played Brazilian, and I just thought, that is incredible, and particularly Domino, when it breaks down to the second section. I, I, it's beautiful, really beautiful chords. And this is what I, where I come back to that thing about it's not good enough just to know technology. And that's where I fail, because I, I know that I, I write technical music. I write stuff that is driven by the technology. And so I've totally embraced that, and I would I'd call it the sound of machines. I mean, that's what our first media album was called. We, it, it's that sense the of, of the sound of machines. It's all about... If you let the if the synths made the music that they wanted to make, this would be it. And that, that's I consider myself a sort of a shepherd or a fluffer for the synths. I sort of turn on oh, fluffer for all the synths. <laughs> you make a t-shirt of that, aren't we? Okay, <laughs> but you know that um, I've said too much. No, <laughs> you haven't. That, for me, that is what defines my love of making music and it's a very specific I, I say making music not music I, I'm not one of these people who's passionate about music and says oh did you hear the way he moved from that chord I'm not that person I'm passionate about that process of making music and what excites me is that sense of I kind of did this with a little help from my friends and those friends are a room full of synthesizers all these days plugins more and more and it's just it takes you on a journey and you, I'm going to sound like an arsehole now, but what happens is it, it sort of drags you by the nose and you, you start turning knobs and thinking, oh, that, that sits quite well, but now that isn't fitting. And you go off and you turn another knob and inadvertently you hit stop on the sequencer or hit whatever. And I always have a DAT on the back of the sequence of the um, the outputs of the focus, right? So that it's always tracking what I'm doing. Because sometimes you hit something and for some reason the sequencer doesn't stop properly or the synth doesn't stop or the you know the drum plugins go a bit weird and it all just goes... And you think, well, that's actually quite pretty. <laughs> and so bits that you hear in the culture stuff come from those moments of, what the hell was that? And you sample it and you stick it onto keyboards and it, it, everything is, is fair game for me. And it's that sense of creating something with the help of technology I find enormously exciting. I, I couldn't do it. If you sat in a room and said, write something on that piano, I can't do it. I, I just tinker away thinking, 
if this was a midi grand, we might have half a chance as long as I had Pro Tools and some plugins. <laughs> but it's embarrassing. And that's the thing. When people hear that you're in music, in inverted commas, you end up at a round at someone's house in the evening. Everyone's had a few I'll drinks. Go they go, play a couple play of songs on the Play something. Go on then. I can't. And they think you're being coy. But no, I can't. I can't do a thing. I've just realised something. Mr. Harmon. Yes. Now, we're in the same band together, yet this is the first time we've ever hung out together. It's a worry, isn't it? But that is a sign of a modern band, that actually everything's pretty much done by broadband. It's like, well, this is my bit, there's your bit, thanks very much, and then you get together for live stuff, don't talk to each other and go home. Welcome to the modern world of music. Indeed. <laughs> oh, I miss the days of porn. <laughs> porn and cheese and a big hat. Uh, that was it, wasn't it? Yeah, smoking a pipe. Ah, the tour bus. Uh, how did you go from being in, in media to working in professional studios with two M1s lurking about <laughs> in a decadent way. Well, and yeah, just lolling them out. Well, um, when I got to the end of school, I was told I had to do the university thing, so I had to choose a university. So I, I panicked slightly. I didn't know what university was, and so I obviously chose French literature. Um, Makes perfect I went, sense. I went and did a degree in that. Um, Where did you read I, that? I went to uh, UCL. Uh, in oh, London. yeah, no, to stop the world. No, we, yeah. have, we have an issue here. Oh, dear, What's I that? went to King's. Oh, yeah, just down the road from us, then. Yes, very good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, damn well. <laughs> why? I, I don't know there's what a, you mean. No, now look, there's a wee bit of a rivalry. A little bit. I, I, I yes, I, I, I'm not really no. militarized in that sense, simply because it was a weird place, only because it, it wasn't a campus university. So, I mean, as you know, you know you're know, you just flung into London, really, as, mm. as part of the chaos of London. So there's lots of music around, there's lots of interesting people around, but you don't have that real sort of engagement in the, the whole university scene. But what that meant for me was that I, I was free to sort of go around and go to the music shops, rummage around Denmark Street and irritate the hell out of the people in turnkey music and sit there and just touch synthesizers really and play around with stuff and learn stuff and um it the reason i got i got started in the industry in inverted commas rather than just messing around on my own um was that at the time my brother-in-law who then who became my brother-in-law so my sister's brother was mixing i think at the time starlight express um at the victoria theater when i first knew him when Mm, she first met him because she was kind of in major major production yeah i mean in, in a big show in london um and after that i'm not sure which show he was on by the time i got to university but this is sort of 1990 ish something like that 91 mm-hmm. and um it transpired that he was working on one of the camera macintosh shows and um they had just got these things called synthesizers that they needed to take on tour in the uk um and in other words they they had the london shows that had since installed when the show first went live so someone at the time had worked with the writers of the show to create appropriate sounds on then dx7s um for les mis and for cats it was profit five um and they needed to tour those shows but of course you couldn't buy that kit anymore you know there, there were no such thing you didn't they weren't going to buy them second hand so they needed someone who could take a load of brand new synthesizers from Yamaha um, and samplers and turn them into the sounds of the London shows so that they could tour Les Mis and they could tour Cats. Um, And my brother-in-law 
brilliantly said, well, you know, my brother-in-law's a right geek. He, he can do it. Um, and so I was summoned, you know, young as I was, I, um, I was summoned to this, uh, this meeting up at the Cameron Macintosh office in Bedford Square. I walked in and I tried to be terribly suave and sophisticated and I wore this sort of trench coat, which at the time was the thing. And I felt I looked amazing so i walked into this meeting i'm sure you did well the reason i mentioned the trench coat is i walked into the meeting and the door closed behind me and caught my coat in it <laughs> so i had this moment of sort of yes. heading, heading towards them to shake hands and i got stuck and i couldn't quite reach their hands and it was it was a terrible moment but i mean again my brother-in-law with a brilliant sense of humor said uh, yeah the name's bond <laughs> and that was it you know from that point on it was all fine and the thing was they needed someone who could program this stuff and um, it, they, they asked a few questions and we chatted about the technology and they said, do you think you can do this? Can, can you make this new batch of synthesizers sound like the old ones? And I, I said, yeah, I think I can do that. And so I worked with the, uh, the musical director of that show at the time, uh, a guy called David White, um, a lovely guy, and he helped me through it. You know, he helped me to understand what the show was and how it all works. I really knew nothing about musical theatre. Um, <clears throat> and the complexities of touring a show like that. You know, you've got a lot of technology and the technology is such a fundamental part of the show. If you listen to those albums, whether or not you like musical theatre, they are such a definitive part of the show. You know, Cats, that sort of that meow sound from the Prophet 5 and with Les Mis, that sort of clonking DX7 almost foreboding sound it's it somehow brilliantly entwined with that whole french revolution sense you know it, it's it's bleak it's powerful it's morose i mean yamaha wouldn't thank me for saying any of that but it's the thing about fm it is it's strangely mathematical it's, it's not a, a warm happy sound it's bleak and so the stuff that um john cameron had originally done when orchestrating les mis it, uh, had was beautiful 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 and therefore we had all these sounds and i had to sort of corral the sy 77s we bought a load of sy 77s and it was great it was like a wayne's world moment the, the people in yamaha music in conduit street as it was then you know this is a the yamaha outlet in london um i walked in there lovely guys but they'd seen me a few times and i had bought nothing the absolute square root of cock all but i'd fiddled with all their sins and they was like oh here he is again and it was that moment of wayne's world i turned in sort of do you accept cash because we want to have <laughs> four <laughs> or six sy 77s immediately and so you went a- from cock all to <laughs> this man has broken the sales it was brilliant we never sold so many to one person <laughs> so suddenly yes yes this the can i help you riff of synthesizers <laughs> yes i need these please um it was brilliant and and from that point on, it meant that they, you know, they were supplying them um, into those shows. And we used SY77s, we used samplers. For the cats, we used Akai S1000 samplers. I mean, to my mind, a beautiful piece of kit. Very simple. Absolutely. Very simple. Yes. Straight down the line. Not so much with Akai's later gear. More Enough of the. Said <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, the S1000 uh, sampler, I mean, my goodness, the, the mainstay of dance music sampling for 
for decades. You still see them being used in certain it's studios. Just rugged, reliable, simple. I mean, not necessarily simple to use. They had an awful lot of buttons and an enormous screen. I mean, a big old LCD mm. screen line. But it's quite telling that even on the Michael Jackson tour or the tour that never happened, you know, just before he sadly died, you saw during the rehearsals of that in the rack of the drummer is still an S1100. You know, that these things live forever. <laughs> They're mm. not designed to last forever. Particularly, I mean, not so much the hard disk ones, but the ones that were scuzzy were just, you know, really good bits of kit. So we use those. We sample like the Prophet 5s, which is kind of against the grain, but it was necessary. Yeah, so we had, uh, a, a, I can only describe as a flurry of Roland A80 keyboards. That was a big day in Turkey as well. <laughs> Walking into Turkey, it's like, I need four A80s. Um, but they also had some A80s left over from another show. Uh, that had closed and so we sort of cobbled together the kit that we wanted and we was we had a two of the original profit fives so we twiddled knobs on those and made them sound like the original sound so we meticulously were going through the album and effectively recreating those sounds um with the help again of the musical director saying it should sound like this it sound like this it sound like this um and that musical director i think on on the cats one it was martin kosh um and he again really it's such an eye-opening thing to hear those guys talk about music and technology and and their understanding. I, I what blew my mind and, and to this day will blow my mind is is the genuine ferocious musical talent of the people in the pit. Be they the musical directors, be they the musicians, I I bow my head to these people because they are ferociously musical. Uh, they apathetic to almost to a man you know they they are brilliant but it's just a job to them and weirdly their their brain is just segmented in that way so they can be having a conversation with you i, I would sit in the pit during some of the early rehearsals or tech rehearsals and they'd be saying yeah this sounds all right but can you just brighten this one up a bit it just hasn't got enough edge and you're saying you're playing the bloody show get on with the playing the show <laughs> and so yeah it's a rehearsal but their, their brain is just divided down the middle they can just do that they can play this thing day in day out and chat to you about it it's, it's a real skill and the precision with which they play and the timing with which they play i thought in my naivety back then was only possible with and I know people will cringe when I say this, a sequencer. You know, the, it was metronomically accurate and fearsome. And I, I'd take my hat off to them. These are really clever people. And we were putting technology in front of them and asking them to push all sorts of buttons and select this patch and this patch and this patch and layer this with that. And it was great use of the technology, a very interesting use of the technology. But weirdly, it was always backward looking because you wanted to recreate those sounds. And ultimately, before... We, the show went live in any tour or ultimately I started working on the international stuff was someone from the show one of the big names you know be it a, a Lloyd Webber or a, a Schoenberg or whoever would come and listen to it and give it their okay um, and that was always the acid test that, that was the moment when someone would judge your work as a programmer indirectly they weren't sitting there thinking I wonder if the synths sound okay but they would listen to the show and if it wasn't right you know you're all for the high jump um so it, it was a, that was my first induction into that world. It was an incredibly lucky first gig. I, at the time, I think I was just a sort of naive and a bit arrogant about it, thinking, well, you know, we'll see what happens. And after a, a year or so doing that, I, I got my degree and thought, well, I'll go off and get a job because that's what you do. Um, and so I went off in to... In way, work. you already had one. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I had probably what the kind of job that most synth guys would kill for. Um 
it was a job that kind of didn't exist a few years earlier, but it suddenly just appeared and there I was. But I just thought, I, you know, I, I want to be a, in a job. I want to have, you know, colleagues and do stuff, not just be on my own. Um, so I went off to work for Soundcraft. Um, and I worked for them for seven years, designing or working as a product manager, I should say, for their large format theatre consoles. Um, and using some of my experience, I suppose, from the musical theatre in that. Um, and it, it's been something that's run throughout my life, is that I tend to be a bridge between very technical and very creative people um, and trying to help each understand each other. So in, in Soundcraft, it was about helping the R&D teams to understand what it was that the people out on the tours were needing. But also the flip side of that was making sure the people on tour realised the limitations of the technology and, and what could and couldn't be achieved and what was realistic and, and trying to get a rapport going on whilst also designing the products with them. You know, you're, it's a, a constant juggling act. Um, and I, I was one of a team of people, there's was, was a brilliant product manager at Soundcraft who's still there, I think, called Andy Andy Brown. And, um, you know, these people just know so much about that technology. And I, I've been lucky... Everything I've done, all, the, all these encounters I've had with various companies and parts of the industry, I've, I've just been sitting around some really bright people and clever people who were great at what they did. Um, and it's quite telling that I think most of them are still in that industry, whichever, you know, wherever they were, whatever they're doing, because they were good at it and they stayed. And I, I've always been sort of more fleet of foot. I, I never knew where I would end up. <laughs> so I was always tugging at the next thread thinking, hmm, uh, what next? And... So, yeah, after seven years at Soundcraft, I went freelance again and thought, what shall I do? I <laughs> I went, well, okay, I, I thought I'd go off and do film sound because that's what you do. You go off and write soundtracks and become, you know, John Williams. So I thought, that's it. I'll get As you do. I'll get yeah. on the phone to Hans Zimmer and I'm sure he'll just bung me an email. <laughs> well, we'll be nothing. Um, but more to the point, I thought I'll also be a writer. I shall be a writer, you know, because I had this sort of love of creating text and prose and didn't have an idea for a book so I thought that's a great way to start it's a tremendous way to write um, I thought I'll be a writer uh, immediately nothing happened I, I sat there so I, I thought I'd be sitting there sort of penning my innermost thoughts and sucking a pen and staring out into the distance in a black polo neck and I all that actually happened was I sat around in my pants watching Countdown which is not a brilliant way to start a book. Richard um, Whiteley at that particular time was incredibly captivating. R.I.P. Yeah, beautiful man and very interesting. And it was wonderful, but it wasn't the most productive year of my life. Um, and then I, I immediately earned no money for at least two years um, and thought, I, I, what is it that I want to do? And I got drawn back into that world of programming and I, I, I knew that I could do that. I had to make ends meet. So I, I went back into that world of synth programming and engineered for bands and artists and studio um chief among them chicane um how did the chicane contact um happen how did that that was historical actually that, go, that goes way back because um nick who who effectively is chicane a great guy called nick bracegirdle he he is ultimately chicane he does a lot of collaborations he works with all sorts of producers and people along the way but he is the heartbeat of chicane and I knew him from back in the day because he came into the music shop in Amersham because he lived not far you from there. You knew him from that? That's how we first that met. far back. That's how we first met. And, and way back then, he and I did bits of music together because he needed somewhere to record. You know, he had these tracks in his head. He had no kit. Or he had bits and pieces of kit. I think he had a couple of, you know, a drum machine, an SH-101, as, as did we all, and wanted somewhere to put a couple of tracks down. So he came round to my house and 
we, we we put a couple of tracks down and, and we started sort of recording stuff together and um, we did some demos together and then ultimately when I went off to um, I, I started doing the shows and I then on to Soundcraft and he went his own way and carried on doing his music and became this massive thing called Chicane and it's been hugely successful and deservedly so um, so that that's how I knew him and so I, I you know we'd sort of loosely stayed in touch and so when I, I thought, well, you know, I'll carry on programming, we got in touch again and we were chatting and he said he needed a programmer. And so I, I worked with him for a couple of years, mostly two or three years. Um, around the time of the uh, the Easy to Assemble album and then Somersault. Um, and then after that, I, what started to happen was I realised that I really, I wanted to keep music for fun. Because whoever you work with, however great they are and however interesting the industry is, it stops being that beautiful thing of fun and creativity and that great outlet if you're doing it for a living. Because inevitably you focus on it in the way you would a job. And particularly as an engineer, particularly as a programmer, it's all about the detail. You know, you're not the creative in the room. You you can chuck ideas and you can do things, but it's about being absolutely 100%, being able to deliver. When someone says, you know that bass line from whatever, you know, it's that kind of sound. How do you, you're always on it. You've got to be there. You've got to be ready to tweak the knobs and make stuff sound right. And it's a fascinating process and I love doing it. Um, But I realised I wanted to keep music for fun. Um, but I quite liked the IT stuff, you know, the making computers work <laughs> and making Macs work and making making PCs do stuff and talk to each other and networking in its infancy back then. And I drifted off into that world. And I, since then, I've been I've been an IT programmer. You know, I, I consider myself, first and foremost, a freelance IT programmer now. You know, I, I am a, a database programmer, which when most people talk to me, they think, well, what? Because what? <laughs> they know me from kind of music. But my, my daily bread, my life is actually computers and databases. And I dive back in. It was the Dave Barbarossa connection that dragged me back into the world of music. How did you meet him? Via, that was via Chicane. Um, Dave, oh, well, okay, so long story. Chicane, whenever they play live, Nick quite rightly has this thing about playing live he wants to play live he doesn't want to turn up and press a space bar you know he he wanted a band and it meant that we had to have musicians but good musicians and by that i don't just mean musicians who are talented at what they do these were people who had to play well in a band most importantly for the drummer it was it was a horrible job because it meant you had to play meticulously to a click because nick would also layer in a lot of the kick drum and a lot of the sounds in that sense um so there'd be a lot of the the rhythm was was also in the backing track but you as a drummer had to build on that have your own kick drum and a snare and really deliver those rhythms but a lot of nick's music is about that sort of syncopation about the feel it's a beautiful rhythmic feel and so you had to be right on the money with all that deliver all of that and also give your own feel as a musician on top of it and you know we went through drummers (laughs) um spinal tap (laughs) um but Ultimately, you know, Dave was one, was someone who came in. I, I don't know. It may have been via via Paul Louis. I think it probably was the guy who initially suggested it. But Dave was was clearly an enormously talented guy, and very self effacing, very sort of quietly mm. spoken chap who's just a brilliant, brilliant drummer. But most importantly, he has that unique ability 
I'm saying unique, okay, I've probably come across three or four people in my entire musical life who can do this. You can play to a click spot on to the point where it's almost metronomic, but you also give it your feel on top of that. You can play around it. I mean, mm. you know what that's like. You know, mm. someone gives you a click in your head and say, play a bass to that. A lot of people just lock into it and they go, yeah, yeah I'm right on it. Yeah, but I want right on it with you. Mm. You know, you're right on it with a bit of you around it. And that's where Dave was fantastic, for, you know, for the chicane sound. And he got his head around uh, the technology because we were doing a lot, obviously a lot of sample playback. He was triggering sampled sounds. So we give him a rack of E64s, detail fans. Um, the emulator 64 sampler playing back off uh, EEPROM library that we put on it. So we'd have a couple of those. He'd have electronic drums and he'd have a um, Octopad or the modern equivalent, the SPD or whatever they were called, triggering MIDI. Um, so it was, it was out of his comfort zone because it wasn't an acoustic kit. It was you know, an electronic kit. And back in that day everything was on headphones so he had no real monitoring other than his headphone with the click and whatever mix he would get live which as you can imagine in a festival environment absolute chaos um but it worked and that's where dave and i started chatting back then and after you know many years after the whole chicane thing um i I don't know maybe via facebook or something I, i i put up something i can't remember how actually we met i mean it may have just been a text or something where Dave just said, you know, would, would you be interested in doing sort of a bit of stuff together? Because he had these ideas for rhythms and sort of had a vision for some synth and drum thing. So we got together in the studio in Mill Hill. I say studio, lovingly, it's a room um, that smelt largely of cigarettes and slightly of urine. Um, I that, was there before, okay. I apologise. <laughs> must have been pleased to be there because it, yeah, it, was, it was a remarkable room. But... We would meet up there several times, and what we did in the end was to record down some of his drums in a very basic way, because all I wanted initially was a guide track, this, just an idea of something to go away and use that as inspiration. So I used two mics and stuck them on different drums, and he played to this click, and I stuck it in back then, it was Logic, and took it home and started to chop up what he'd done and to drop it into tracks, and I added my synth stuff. And it became what is now, there are the bits and pieces on SoundCloud, it's called Dathe, D-A-T-H-E. Um, and to this day, it's some of my favourite stuff we've done, or I've done, because it is pure. It, we, we were very cautious that we didn't want to overproduce it. It should just be the noise that we made together. And it was raw and... It was chopped up to a degree, so it was a bit, you know, a bit sort of found sound because I would I would cut him up and drop him into blocks, but it's still Dave playing in blocks, you know, twenty four bar blocks or eight bar blocks or whatever it is. So it's still very much him. It's just what I wanted to do was to to drop in over the top of that little extra segments of what he did, just to add some flavour and depth. To think, well, surely one man can't play that, and there are bits where, yeah, that's true, one person can't play that, but he played all of it. And it's it's like having two Dave Barbarossas in the room. It's those little <laughs> moments of drop-ins. You think that, ah, oh. and it mesmerised me. Uh, and it's it's a beautiful sound, and I I really enjoy it. And it's one of those things. I love the fact that it, we didn't go back over it and try and reproduce it. What we actually did was to cut them into lots of different edits. We we set ourselves the mission and say, well, let's make five two-minute edits of this track, or three two-minute edits in that sort of sinkable world. You know, for the ad companies, for you know, let's just make a library of stuff and say, well, that is sort of day that lives over there. It's over there. It's not going to play live. It's not going to do anything else. 
And then of I, mean, I think sort of probably inspired by that, Dave always had that in the back of his mind, and hence at some point he it gave birth to this concept in his mind of cauldronated. What was to become cauldronated? Um, and so via a circuitous route, you know, he, he he then thought, what if, you know, what if you did a synth thing with these drums and you were to put then a vocalist on it? You know, wh- where would it, what sort of vocalist would you do? Because, it, you know, it's quirky drum stuff. And um, he came across this, this drummer. I think he's told the story in, uh, you know, many times. After a gig, he'd seen Eva play, Eva Menon play live. Um played the drums and went to and to sing and went to her afterwards and just said do you fancy being in a band it was one of those moments of just lovely serendipity it wasn't a complicated process of you know chasing each other up via each other's people you know it was just do you want to be in a band yeah okay and this this idea was born um and so we took some tracks that we had uh, in idea form and started to overlay stuff and Eva very quickly it was obvious she was dropping more in than just being a singer you know she was bringing an awful lot to it and so in the end we just thought well that becomes a new band and it's called Cauldronated um and then you know over a period of time we just thought again you know we're missing something there's this this one extra thing that we need and no none of us knew what it was and you know what do you do do you do the guitars thing do you get a live keyboard player to come in where do you take it? And then there was this genius moment where, I, I mean, you can tell the story. I don't, I don't know how he found you, but the genius stroke was to find someone who plays bass, which in theory is ridiculous because Cordonate is full of bass, you know, Absolutely. as you discovered. You know, I mean, we've got backing tracks that are, I mean, the way that I write, because I used to noodle around on the bass. So I'm very much about that rhythmic, that pulsing low end and finding interesting syncopated grooves. Um, so it's probably the gig from hell for a bassist to come into. But what it meant was, and I think this is where it's been really exciting having you around, is you've played much more interesting stuff than any conventional bassist walking into a band with no bottom end would produce because you've brilliantly played with the tracks, filled the gaps in a really interesting way, Um and still made it the baseline, but it's in a different register. And it, it's interesting, it's beautiful, it's bright. And Dave has done it again in that sense. He's created something unique. I mean, you wouldn't set out to build what we have with Cauldronated. My word, no. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for all that. And my word, no, in, in quite a, a great and very beautiful, very visceral way. Um, Dave was interviewed in this very room back in January of this year and that became the embryo for us all and he was looking around in this very room at all the instruments and initially thought you know what's the story about that and and then when I mentioned the fact that I did a lot of dance music and that's why I have a lot of instruments it isn't necessarily a typical Nigel Tufnell thing <laughs> of, you know I collect them. this one's still got the tagger oh, on sure, it yeah, yeah. yeah you've seen that for that one <laughs> <laughs> and I then like after the after the he was on uh, the Dukey radio show he contacted me and said do you want to meet up and initially I thought oh he just wants to meet up for a drink we got on really really well and I thought it was purely social and I was quite excited by that it's Dave Barbarossa bringing me out it's the man it's <laughs> the <on>. man <laughs> asking me out for a drink and um, and he was very straight to the point I've got this weird idea um, 
for, with what coordinators are doing, most bass, bass players or guitar players w- would hate it. I think you're the man. Would you like to make some noise in the studio? I think it's going to be really, really, really good. And, mm. and we did, and it, it, it was. And his whole headspace was, I think, very much for all the reason, reasons that you mentioned earlier, where when he was doing the, the, the chicane sessions live and he was a slave to the click and dealing with all of that, it, it's a different discipline than just being with a guitar player and a bass player, maybe a keyboard player and just all hands on deck, bash it out. And he, I think, due to our, our common ground for respecting dance music and all of its offshoots, recent offshoots, like grime and things like that, he, he knew that I was going to be coming in from a different headspace and would know and respect what not to play mm. and the respecting space. And then suddenly, you know, there we are in the room together and, you know, even he'd been, you know, doing coordinated with yourself for two years. Suddenly I've been invited into all of this. It's quite an, an intimidating prospect. Yeah. And <clears throat> it, it gelled incredibly well. Suddenly it felt like, to them, like I'd been there all along. Yeah. And for me, it felt very, very natural. Um, and delivering the kind of a, a, aggression and in-your-face stuff that I was used to doing live, but with the precision that when I was doing dance stuff mm. where you have to be a slave to the click or whatever loop you were playing over or whatever sequences you were having to weave in, a, in and around. It's, it's unforgiving. Yeah, it's yeah. unforgiving. It's, it's a really difficult environment, and particularly when you're live because you can't necessarily hear everything that's going on. No. Um, you have to take the, the, the cue from the drummer or, or take the cue from what you can hear from the monitors, and it's difficult to be metronomic because you don't get a click. So... It, it's particularly tough for you, and uh, it, it's testament to what you brought to the band. I think that you're you're not just plodding around. I, say, I mean, I don't mean that demeaningly, but you're not plodding around four on the floor. You know, you're just giving it bass because that's the last thing it needed. So it was it was a very interesting addition, and and I think particularly your ability to to fill the gaps, um, and not to the point where everything's just just rammed with sound, but interestingly to play around the almost the the melody of the rhythm of the bass if that makes sense it, what interested me originally was the gaps that's what i give to dave is, is when we're first making a track and the coordinated it tends to be i'll send him some quirky piece of synth stuff and a couple of times he's completely misinterpreted where it begins and ends because it's so gappy there's no obvious here's the bar here's the beat and you'll send it back and I think well what's going on but I really like it and so we'll shift it and we shift that and that becomes the track and he goes well that that really works for me and it's that sense of it's the gaps you know here's here's a track with a load of gaps and interestingly they get populated by people who have a natural sense of when to play and when not to play and that's a real art and it's fascinating to me and I find it much harder being the second or third person down the line I find it quite easy to be the person who makes something with some gaps in it and that will always be me and so I'm not that person on the stage who will go I'm going to fill in with this now I'm going to do a solo you know I'm, I'm going to see <laughs> Look at me. a memory, memory move and off I go um, if there is a memory move I'll be at home with it with the door shut clutching <laughs> it firmly to myself yeah it's kind of a weird thing being in, in a band like Coordinated and you were the the other member who produced all these incredibly 
dynamic, eccentric, and I mean that in the the most respectful way, kind of synth part, um, very left of centre, and you were at each rehearsal in terms of the parts, but I only met you uh, half an hour or so before the first sound check I did with the band. Probably holding a last glass of wine at the time. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that especially is my job now. When I turn up at any live gig is to hold wine and talk to people. <laughs> um, that I haven't played live for a long, long time. And partly it's... it's partly, if I'm being and ask about it it's the purest in me thinking if i can't take a load of analog synths and sit there for 20 hours setting it up i don't really want to play live and the other half is the pragmatist in me that says i don't really want to do that anyway <laughs> so it's impossible i would never make myself happy playing live i don't want to be someone who just turns up with a laptop and presses space um and sort of dances around behind a dx7 that's not plugged in what's the point um i i could take you know it'd be nice to take a couple of emacs's live one day and play some stuff on top but is it going to add to the tracks i don't know i'm sort of with craftwork on that who say we got it right the first time why would we noodle around with it live um i've never liked being live i've never liked actually being above the line at all um i'm not a performer i i don't mind having my name on it um i'm flattered that people enjoy using the music and, and listening to the music and engaging with the music. And I love hearing it played live. I feel really proud. I, I genuinely well up listening to you guys bang it out live. And it, it feels like us playing live, even though I'm not there. To me, you know, it feels like this is it. This is me live. Um, but I have no issue at all with not being on stage because I wouldn't add anything to it. I, I am not a someone who's going to go off and do a blistering solo. I, that will never be me. And I think that also was part of the driver of Dave looking for somebody else on stage because just two people on stage looks like there's been some sort of horrible malfunction, um, especially if there's an awful lot happening in a backing track, whereas with three, it's not a problem. You know, you've, you've got a lot going on. You've got interaction on stage. There's a backing track, but there's also a lot of noise coming out of the instruments, and it makes a lot more sense. And so I think people miss me less <laughs> in the current lineup. Um, and it, it's kind of fun. It, it adds a sort of slight, slight quirk to the whole thing. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm in no rush to fix it. I, I don't see it as a problem. I think it's interesting when people start the conversation, because almost in some interviews that, that Dave's done or Eva's done talking to people, it's only after a while they realise they haven't actually talked about the, the backing track or the synth side at all. And Dave will always refer to it, uh, but sort of in passing. And it's great because it sort of becomes this strange sort of MacGuffin sort of thing of never mention the synth. You know, what's going on with the synth? Now, where did that come from? Did you buy them off a shelf? Um, are they royalty free? Um, well, indeed, it's a bit like your world has come full circle in a way. When you're doing the programming for um, Lemis and Cat, in a way, you became acclimatised to the fact that uh, composers and producers and the, if you will, the the people that were funding it would turn up to see the the production before it went on tour, and were there to sign everything off, and you could be in the wings looking at that happen. Hmm. knowing that your job is essential and in a way by being appreciated as part of this big picture you were doing your your job yeah. if something wasn't right if there were keyboard sounds that were 
non-era specific or not um, dynamically in keeping with the feel of of Katz or Lemire's, um, it, it would have been noticed. And in a way, you've now become that composer and programmer turning up to the gig to double check that everything makes sense, that it all yeah. scans. Yeah, I mean that that is that's exactly right. I, I'm. I consider that my role, if you like. My live role is to turn up and make sure that the sound guy doesn't screw it up. And all I mean by that is we're not a usual band live. You know, the kind of sound, the way that Dave plays is not a normal drummer. So most sound guys will get up a normal set and before they've even listened to the band play, whatever you say to them, they'll set up the desk as they always do for a load of drums. And you say to them, look, now Dave plays heavily. He really depends on the toms, particularly the floor tom, to give it the rhythm, so you want a little bit of compression over that. And, you know, you want to be working in a slightly different way to a normal kit, and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They make, they, they, you can see it, and they prep the desk in exactly the way you would for any normal drum kit. They play the drums, and, and then they go, hmm. And they sort of spend the next five, ten minutes twiddling, and then they look at you and go, yeah, okay, I've got it. <laughs> and it, it just takes a little longer. to, And it's annoying, because you'd love to think we're actually quite an easy band. We've got drums, we've got a vocalist, and a bassist, DI. Um, it shouldn't get any easier than that, plus the backing track. But actually, because the way that we use instruments is slightly different, and because the sound that we we want to project is very specifically this sort of tribo what's it called a tribal electro punk or that it's it, mm. it was given quite a good name i think our, our label at some point came up with a very good explanation of it um for me it's a really important balance you know that there's a really subtle thing about the brightness of the synths has to be just sufficient to show there is interest in the backing track it's not just the backing track the bottom end of the backing track has to be clean and clear enough to show there is rhythm in there, but not so dominating that your bass is overpowered by it. And your bass equally has to be higher in the mix than one would normally do because you're doing interest, detail, and a lot of the time you're doing partial melody. You know, the way that you're playing is really interesting. So, again, that's higher than usual. Dave's drums focus a lot on the floor toms and you, you really want that rolling thunder thing of the toms more so than the kick and the snare. And the kick is important, the snare is important, but the snare is actually lower in the mix than you'd normally do. This is not about a drummer who occasionally goes for that massive snare moment. I mean, Dave's got the loudest snare I think I've ever heard in my life. But actually, it's not about that. It's about the detail and clarity of the snare, but set back slightly. And so I'm disappearing into you know, wanky mix stuff, but this is... It's really important to me when you're talking to a sound engineer not to go into those terms necessarily, but just to help them to understand that we are different. And so that is my live performance, in inverted commas. That's me turning up, doing my bit. And yes, there is wine involved. <laughs> um, but As there should as be. There should be. But essentially, the, my role live is to turn up and make sure that we make the best of whatever there is there. You know, sometimes you will turn up and there isn't a sound system. <laughs> You spend the first, a couple of yeah, times. You spend the first 20 minutes building a sound system and then the, the next 20 minutes trying to make anything come out of the speakers. Um, alternatively, sometimes you turn up and there is an incredible sound system and really clever guys who know exactly how to use it. And those gigs are much easier. Um, and you, you barely have to say anything other than these sort of notes, if you like, pace notes about how to, how to make the most of our sound. Because we are unusual. We're, we're sort of uncategorizable to a way. You know, I, I think... 
that's it's it's a beautiful thing and it's a great thing but it makes life difficult for us because mm-hmm. if you fit us into any set if you think well who else do i put them on? if you're a promoter you know what sort of evening do you put us into um we are we are unique but that was always the mission you know dave worked extensively in the past with malcolm mclaren and you know who is more of a an inventor and more of a a driver of individuality than that man you know he was incredible so and dave rightly has inherited a lot of that and really strives to upkeep that sense of individuality you know well what is it that makes you different what is the point of being the same as everybody else you'll be discovered by people who like you anyway so you might as well do stuff that interests you and makes you different there is no point in being the same even if that means you get the next gig if that means you get the deal you know to what end you know um and that's really exciting you know to 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 be around someone who thinks like that uh, is what keeps me in it because i I should be sitting in front of a computer all day tapping away into databases you know i i'm dragged back into this curious world of music the Um, whirlpool of barbarossa (laughs) the red beard wave um yeah the impossible black hole the event horizon of barbarossa um has drawn me back in on many an occasion and it's great And, and we have many an interesting chat about the past and music and the future. Uh, it's enlightening to talk to someone like that who has so much experience. I mean, such a wealth of experience and uh, has met so many interesting people along the way. It just it, it enriches my musical knowledge every time I talk to him about anything. Um, you know, he's like you. He has an, an encyclopedic knowledge of interesting music over the years and can talk to you about anything very literally and 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 he and he's written a book you know he, he's not your average drummer <laughs> oh, no, my words yeah he, he's highly intelligent very intellectual chappy as much as he likes to play it down and you know i'm just a north london lad in it yeah. um, he's so not that guy um, I mean, can you imagine two people in a room who seem less suited to each other than him and me? <laughs> it's extraordinary when we're together. People look at you like, what's going on here? What kind of band is this? <laughs> you know I mean? But it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. And because we come at it from such different angles, we always have fabulous discussions about music. And we're, our commonality is absolutely that belief that we will always do something that pleases us. And pretty much, if it makes us smile and it works in the studio, that's what goes down to tape. And tape, listen to me. <laughs> um, Virtual but, uh, tape. <laughs> call it what you will. Um, it's in the, the can, dude. It's in the can. <laughs> it's, it's on the wax cylinder. <laughs> we, um, uh, there's a fantastic moment whenever we record the drums, because I, I do everything at home. I sit in a little cupboard with bits and pieces of technology, and... Then when it finally comes to making some noise and putting the tracks down properly, we go to a, a place in Acton and a brilliant engineer called Aid. Um, who's a, a dear friend who's two. been a, a guest on the Dookie Radio Show Has he? Well, a couple of years back. A very long-standing friend. Lovely man. Oh, I mean, just the most brilliantly laid-back but knowledgeable person. Mm. He, he's the sort of backbone of the music industry. It's people who have no swagger about them but just quietly get on with being brilliant <laughs> it's that's, that's 82 a t it's agonizing to watch because he's so good you know mm. he, and you just know that it looks like 
when you when you walk into his place, it's not a flash studio at all. It's very basic old gear. It's Pro Tools, whatever it is. Pro Tools Eight. You know, it, it's all it's kind of old, but it's established, and you know that okay, this this knob here doesn't work. This fader doesn't work, and you know some of these LEDs have gone. In the, but it doesn't matter because what happens is he tweaks a few knobs and and gets all the mics in exactly the right position. And then hits record and Dave plays and it just sounds brilliant. <laughs> and it's quite amazing. And he captures that thing. Mm. And I always, whenever I meet him, he comes to gigs occasionally. And I always apologise to him saying, I'm sorry, I've probably screwed up your drums. Because what happens is I take them back and I can't help myself, but I start to process them a little bit, a little bit. I mean, he, brilliantly, he captures every nuance, every dynamic of what Dave does and just makes this fantastic sound. So it's mine to screw up, you know, and... I, I don't do a great deal to it, but there are some things that are, I would say, signature to the coordinated sound, that sort of Colonel Sanders moment where you just think, actually, if we did a little bit of this and just do a little bit of that. Um, a bit of Dave Harmon fairy dust. <laughs> yeah, that's what my lawyers will always say. <laughs> um, then, yeah, it, it's... That's all. You know, it, it's just a little bit of that, but he captures that sound. So, he, you know, for me... His name is is equally big as mine on on the album sleeve. You know, from my point of view, he he captures that thing, and it, it's a unique thing. I've worked with a lot of engineers, a lot of recording engineers over the years, who do everything by the book, and they get very nice recordings. It's it's technically correct, but what Aid does is he manages to capture the sound of a drummer and that particular drummer, and that that is a real skill, and. It, it shouldn't be underestimated, you know. And my word, S- certainly not. No, and it's through AD that I met Mr. Barbarossa in the first place. Okay, very good. We've and got full um, he became the the conduit for it. Uh, okay, invited me to a gig that Dave uh, was going to. It was uh, John Cooper Clark and uh, Hugh Cornwall the. Stranglers performing at the Electric Ballroom. Wow! And um, and that's where I first had that gig, and in attendance was Dave Barbarossa and um, and Eva was there as well. It's the yeah. first time I met the the two of them, and we then went to see Coordinated live at a venue in Hoxton, the Queen of Hoxton, oh. which is the first time I saw Coordinated. Yeah, and uh, you know I went with AD, and then a month later. I was interviewing Mr. Redbeard himself, Mr. Dave Barbarossa, in this very room. <laughs> and then about five weeks after that, I was in the studio rehearsing with Coordinated for the first time. Yeah. So it, it's November, December 2014 is when we first met. And it's only at the beginning of this year that the um, working relationship, uh, creative relationship, um became sealed and it seems like a very long time ago in the sense of how how tight and second nature the dynamic is so much so that it's really easy to forget that you know we've not mm. been playing together a year i've only met th- you in I, march i think that's one of those skills though because he picks the right people it all feels fairly seamless mm. you know it feels like you kind of know each other forever because you naturally slot together he, he wouldn't ask if he didn't think that was the case and um so he's good at that uh, he, he doesn't do it by accident he, he, he plays the fool but he's not absolutely <laughs> it, it, i remember the spirit of, of McLaren most definitely resides very comfortably and very powerfully mm. within Dave um, Barbarossa. I remember in in this very room um, when I was interviewing him, 
he was talking about coordinated and he said it ain't for everybody and I said nor should it should it be mm. and he got a really big smile on his face it, it, it was as though Malcolm McLaren was in the room yeah. the idea that why should a given band a given act be for everybody let mm. it be a little bit subver- subversive let it ca- cause um, you know let it be uh, a, a source for um, debate and mm. you know divide the troops. Well, I think it's, it's one of the things of, of you know, dare I say, modern music. Without wishing to sound like my father, but you, you, these days everything's out in the open, especially with social media. Everything's all over everything all the time, and you don't have that excitement anymore of discovering something hidden, something truly odd, different that's not for everybody. And I celebrate the fact that we are one of those. You know. Um, whatever happens in future i think the great thing is that we have a very loyal fan base and very interested and interesting fan base who take a particular pleasure in hearing our tracks played and they're they're really very literate about why they enjoy coordinated and and it's fab talking to them at the gigs you know because they they are so interesting and interested and um I, I mean, perhaps every band has that. I don't know. I've not been in enough bands to say. But the, it is intriguing that we have... And we continue to attract people. And there, part of it, I think, is look at this thing you didn't know about. You know, that mm. it intrigues people. But I don't think we're that sticky in as much as I think probably 50% of the people who come and get shown this thing say, it's not for us. But that is the whole point. You know, I, I like that. If everyone who came along said, yeah, this is fine, uh, what's the point it of that? becomes conveyor belt yeah, it does I, standard I, fare which it isn't I, nor should it be I, I don't think it is I don't, I don't think it ever will be and you sort of you face that constant battle in your mind thinking well if it were more mainstream you know could it be more successful could you start to build it and that is always that artistic thing though isn't it you think well could it be more commercial what what would make it more commercial and do you want to do that or do you just want more people to hear this music and therefore, what sacrifices would you potentially make? But should you ever do that? You know. I, but I think Dave and I both set out thinking this is not about making money out of music. This is about doing the music we want to make. Um, it's an easy claim to make as a musician, but I, I'm not a musician. <laughs> so I can make it probably stronger than most. That actually this is kind of something that intrigues us. And it, it's a, an addiction. You know, I, I can't totally walk away from music, so I'm really pleased that they've got me involved in this. Because if if I hadn't had this, I'd be noodling around, sort of making s- sort of squelchy synth noises into headphones late into the night for no obvious reason. At least it have, I have an outlet um, for those the squelchy, squelchy noises strange to be noises. played <laughs> <laughs> with a loud drummer, yes. a loud bassist and around and the venues Eva. of London. Yeah, uh, so uh, at least I have an outlet. <laughs> <laughs> all that pent-up squidging squelchy so. for a reason yeah all those resonant filters and um, the one thing I loved about the chat I had with Mr Barbarossa was that his history is what it is and the fan base and the people that respect it that's a self-evident entity you know, that's there yeah yet at a time of his life where a lot of musicians would start to become embittered 
and or just jumping on the retro gravy train. And by that, you know what I mean. Yeah, there are enough do, tours yeah. where... Yeah, with that, all due respect. Yeah, yes, yeah. that kind of stuff's happening. Yeah, yeah. The fact that it, it's... That he has embraced and absolutely gone headfirst into something very new, um, very, very eclectic, very difficult to to define in venues that are far smaller, far more modest mm. than what he is used and accustomed to playing, you know, in, is, you know, a testament to his, you know, love for, for music. Yeah, and t- that he's there for a reason, because he loves it. And I, I when I first saw him play with Coordinated before I was on stage, and I saw Coordinated a couple of times before... I was indeed on that stage myself. And the one thing that struck me is just how focused and how much he and Eva were loving it. Hmm. And it's a rare thing to see with a, a, a seasoned musician, let alone a music, musician that's just started. There are loads and loads yeah. of young upstarts who are bitter and who feel they're owed something. And uh, sob them and long live Mr. Barbarossa. And long live us. <laughs> long live all of us. Well, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. He, of all the people I've, I've come across, he, he is someone who draws that imaginary line in their life stronger than anybody. He, he is able to say, I am now doing this. This is my thing. And yes, of course, people still come up to me going, are you Dave Barbarossa of, you know, oh, Adam and Nance Bauer. Well, he's got so much history in the Republica. It, it, it's just a roster of amazing gigs, amazing nights, amazing sessions he's done. And yet what he wants to talk about is what he's doing now. And it's not in that sense of, well, my current project is a solo project, you know, after all these years. It's not that at all. It's that he is genuinely always wanting to innovate. And that is rare. And as you say, you know, you can see that in his face. You can see it when he's on stage. What is also great is, although he says himself, you know, we are, it's for him, it's good to start again at the beginning because it reminds you about, you know, the, the drive that you need to make music work when you're starting out you know you've got to believe in it to set up in sticky carpet pubs and sort of set your drums up and fight with a sound engineer and fight with the lighting guy and say you know, I want this drum here and you know it, it's a different sort of world to the one he's used to where you just turn up and the drum riser will be rolled on stage and you just go out and be epic you know that <laughs> that's the world he's in um, and yet now suddenly he's going back and doing those gigs again and that takes some real energy and some real passion and, and um, I really salute him for that. He, he's never dropped that sense of what live performance should be about and discovering music should be about. He, you know, he loves every new track that we do. And it's intriguing to, to see that he is so has such boundless energy um, and always creative, always come out with new grooves. Every gig you go to, you know, he's drumming his drumsticks on a sofa somewhere backstage and saying, well, what about mm. this? You know, what about this? And I've got this this idea this concept and it's just driven you know he's a machine for making new grooves and new beats which in the world of sample loop cds and off the shelf this and you know a million refills of that is very refreshing he's like my human sample loop machine you know I, i he can just play anything and any what's also nice is from a production point of view it you can say to him, can you do exactly that, but just lighten the three, you know, so lighten the three or lighten that two and a half. Uh, he knows where, and you know, just lighten that a little bit, just because you, in your mind, you've sort of got this sense of a bass line or uh, some sort of quirky synth sound that could just sit under that. And he's very good at just taking those little notes on board. And that's the session, that, that's the real pro in him. 
as opposed to the musician, in inverted commas, you know, he has that ability to say, I've got this great idea, but doesn't just go headlong and say it's got to be like that or it's not being recorded. He he takes notes and adjusts and tweaks and you get a great recording and then you go off and just, you know, drop those bits in the gaps. And that's what it's all about. You know, it, it is that it's a real jigsaw puzzle. He cares about the song. He plays yeah. for the good of the song, even if the song hasn't been finished yet. Yeah. He, he has a vision and can... Or if he, if that hasn't been fully formed through yourself or whoever he's collaborating with, he's you know on board to work out what works best dynamically and yeah, uh, yeah an absolute joy to play with and so yeah. self-effacing and lovely, mm. a bit like, like yourself. <laughs> well, you're too kind. You're too kind. But are you? It, it, it would only work in that environment. We're all like that. You know, we, he's not the sort of person to do 27 takes and decide which one he prefers. You know, we're, yeah, it's always the same. If, he, if He'll get it right first time. If he doesn't, we'll do one more. Mm. <laughs> you know, he, in that sense, he's the Manu Cache of, of our recording studio sessions. <laughs> he, he will come in and just play and say, there we go. That's it. Uh, why would we do it again? It's fine. And he's absolutely right. It is because uh, he's rehearsed it so meticulously before he gets there. He knows exactly how it's going to go. And we might add the odd note or think, well, I, because of the, where we put certain mics, certain things are a little more extreme than we'd like or a little more pronounced. And so just ask him to, you know, change it slightly. But that's about it. It's the easiest sessions. You know, we, we tend to put down three or four tracks in an afternoon when we go and do it. We, it's not a case of a week in the studio. You know, we put stuff down very quickly just because it's so meticulously rehearsed, played on great drums of his, played brilliantly and recorded superbly by eight. So it, it's... It's an easy gig. I, I can't really take credit for any of that. <laughs> I had uh, the opportunity to record only once so far with Coordinated on a track called uh, Sick. And I was ex- I was quite nervous thinking, oh, this could be an you know, all-night affair. And it, it was half a take just to get the sounds right. <laughs> and then one take. That was good. Let's do another one for insurance. Oh, that's one we'll do. Mm. And then the bass was put down at the same time. We were done. That's fine. And yes, then the vocals were done, kind of three run-throughs just to try different types of deliveries. Backing vocals done. I think we managed to do the whole recording in about three hours. Yeah, that's about right. Which is a bit like the early days of media when you're talking about... Track in the day. A track in the day. Yeah. I, I, I still hold to that. I... One of the joys and one of the curses of all this modern kit is that everything is endlessly tweakable. I I come back to the same track that I'm you know, doing, even with Cauldronator. I find myself revisiting it for days, coming back thinking, well, that one sound, you know, could it be a little bit louder? And if I just tweak... And what... I mean, it sounds obvious to say it, but once a track is out there, all anyone knows is that track, and they like it or they don't like it. Or they quite like it, you know. I mean, somewhere <laughs> along that spectrum is what happens. As an artist, as a, as a creator of music, you are permanently plagued and haunted by all the versions you didn't play to them. Mm-hmm. And it may sound obvious to say it, but it's one of my biggest bugbears. And that's it's avoiding that that actually leads me to put straight stuff straight down and try and commit it as soon as possible and to warp, to move on. Otherwise, you end up with 75 versions. You release version 62 and wish it was version 64. And that's not a healthy way to enjoy music. Well, that's your lot. 
It's amazing how the allegedly cold world of keyboard synthesis can be such an effective conduit for telling the story of one's musical gestation and coming of life. But, alas, this is only part one of David Harmon's two-part odyssey. Next week we shall continue the drunken gear geekery in earnest, as well as exploring the allure of horsey women, including the Dukey Radio Show's first matchmaking shout-out. You've been listening to The Best Gears of Our Lives, an interview with David Harmon. My name is Dukey and I've been your host. May the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and uh, <clears throat> pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppenny rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. <laughs> Click on your mouse to our Facebook page Facebook It's easy to find, it will not take an age Facebook www.facebook.com Forward slash The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show the thin white Dukey is right. Click your way to the Dukey Radio Show Facebook page. www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show. You won't eat. You need it. You won't eat. You need it. You won't. I'll tell you, Dukey. I'll tell you what I want. That lovely Mr. Bulby, Bulby Rosa. Oh, he's a lovely man, isn't he, Dukey? I'll tell you, if I were 40 years younger, I'll tell you the things. Oh, I couldn't even say the thing. Anyway, buy this thing. Buy this thing.